Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Cassie Burns. Cassie, it's just me, y'all. It's just Cassie. Today's episode is just me, Cassie. So uh, I thought this was a perfect opportunity to pause a little bit in my podcast series and talk a little bit about my career, a little bit about me, and why I'm so passionate about technology, emerging technology, AI, all of that stuff. So um, I usually start my episodes asking people who they are and how we know each other. So who am I? I'm Cassie Burns. I'm an attorney. As I said in my intro, I've been using machine learning for 10 years, specifically in e-discovery. And we're going to talk about that in this episode. And I've had kind of an interesting non-traditional career that has had some very traumatic events that would probably be a whole other episode. There have been times in my career where I didn't have a lot of hope or excitement, but over time, I always followed the technology and I knew that was a smart way to go. And now I'm in a point in my career where I'm very happy and I'm very excited. And I just want to say that right off the bat, because I know it's been a very hard year for many people and many other industries. Technology has taken a huge hit with a lot of layoffs. We tend to see it sometimes in e-discovery still in legal tech. So anyone who's really feeling like they've had a bad year because of layoffs or rifts or anything like that, please know I understand. I have definitely been there. It's very hard. Your feelings are valid. It will get better. That's a hard thing to hear, though, when you're in the midst of it. So I do understand and appreciate that, but there are better days ahead. So that's a little bit about what I do. I, I work in big law now. I've worked in-house. I've worked as a contract attorney where I was only working on a project basis on an hourly basis and had no health insurance for many years. And a job may last two weeks or it may last two years. And now again, I'm at big law. I've worked for software provider that had proprietary software. So that's really where I learned a lot of my technical chops and have had some unique experience that I think a lot of maybe attorneys don't always have. And it's, I'm very lucky that it's kind of happening. I, I feel very at a peak in my career, maybe an upward trajectory. And it's well-timed because there's a lot of conversations about technology and law and technology and broader businesses. So that's really one thing that prompted this podcast episode. So a little bit about me, maybe on a personal level. I was born feet first, literally feet first. So shout out to my mom for that. And I have lived, I'm from Texas. I'm a native Texan from a very small town. The female mascot, the girl's mascot, we were the sissies. <laughs> so take of that what you will. I went to a very small school for my undergraduate degree. I studied abroad in New Zealand as a Rotary Scholar. 
I went to law school at Tulane. And then I lived in Texas and worked in Texas and lived up in DC area, worked there, loved living up there, and then came back to Texas to be close to family and my parents. So that's a little bit about me in a nutshell. There's a lot more to to me, of course, as there is anybody. So what we're going to do this episode, you've probably heard me sprinkle in comments here and there about what I do in my job, e-discovery, that I hint at it in the intro. And I just dig into what e-discovery is. So you can have a better sense of this whole machine that happens kind of silently in the legal world. And it is a very vital, important part of the legal process. If we want to take things at its most simple, the legal profession is largely in a very simple way, focused on two things. What laws are out there? And then what facts either support or don't support a legal position? So you have the law, you have facts. And the fact piece is really where I've spent a lot of my career focused on because the fact piece is largely derived from digital evidence these days. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, it might be boxes of paper, letters, things like that. It may be testimony. Those are still valid and common forms of evidence these days, but we're seeing increasingly digital evidence, electronic evidence is very important. And there's a phase in litigation called discovery. And it is a procedural part of civil litigation. You start off with a complaint, you have to respond to a complaint, and then you start the discovery process where both sides can ask the other side for information, for facts, to help build their respective cases. It is a very robust part of U.S. litigation and what is potentially relevant to a case is very broadly applied here in the U.S. And so anything that is potentially relevant is quote-unquote discoverable in U.S. And really what that means these days, email, email is huge, what we call e-docs, so your loose electronic files stored on your shared network or in SharePoint, And we're increasingly seeing more and more short form messages, be it text messages or Slack or Instagram messages, Facebook messages, wherever. Now, something that's very important for everyone to realize, especially if you work in a job where, you know, you maybe are a manager of something or you have a leadership role or you're engaging in negotiations or you're a salesperson, if you're ever in a situation where you could potentially have information that's relevant in civil litigation. You may have your own emails uh, discovered and produced in litigation. And ultimately, the goal is you give the documents that are potentially relevant or actually confirmed as relevant to the other side in what we would call a production. And the whole process by which we go through to get those documents to the other side is fairly involved, and it sometimes includes terabytes of data. So you may have five custodians or five people where their email is quote unquote collected. We go and pull their email from the corporate email system. 
Um, and maybe there's shared, shared network files, there's SharePoint files, maybe Teams messages, maybe text messages, even if it's their personal email. And then it all gets forensically collected, meaning it's collected in a way that the integrity of those documents are preserved, especially when it comes to metadata. Metadata is data about data. So if you right click on a Word document and you go to properties, you can see things like date created, date modified, author, that's all metadata. And that's all really important for us as we start reviewing the documents and deciding what needs to get produced. We go through this process where we identify who might have relevant information. We go and collect that information. We then put it into a database and software that's specifically been created for this whole cottage industry. And that's a text, largely text-based type of a database. It's SQL-based, so we'll use SQL-based search queries. And then there's analytics that gets folded into that. Once the data has been collected, whatever type of data it is, the majority of which is usually electronic data, again, emails, increasingly short messages we're starting to see. Then we isolate what we're going to review. And that's something that happens over time. The parties negotiate. Again, because it's a text base, right now we tend to use search terms. I think that will personally change over time. And then what happens is you say, okay, these are the documents that we're going to review. These are the, the documents that attorneys will look at and look at the documents and look at the requests that came from the other side, which are called requests for productions. You'll look at the documents and determine, is it relevant? Is it responsive? Is it responsive to the request that the other side has served? So that's our responsiveness call. And there are three main pillars that we look for in this review process. First, we determine, is it something that the other side should have because they asked for it? Is it relevant? And then we determine, is it something that we would normally have to give to the other side because they asked for it? but it is a privileged document. So we do not actually have to give it to them even though it's relevant. So common forms of privilege would be attorney client privilege, work product. So if you're emailing your attorney at your job, maybe about negotiating a contract, those communications might be relevant if it's about that contracted issue, but you wouldn't have to produce it because it's with a with an attorney and those communications are privileged. And then the third pillar, again, the first, is it relevant? The second, is it privileged? The third is who can see the documents when they get produced? So that is confidentiality. Who gets access to those documents to be able to review and help prepare the case? And usually there are a few tiers, two to three, sometimes four. And a lot of times it depends on who the parties are involved. If it's two competitors, you may really limit very strategic documents. So your competitor, their outside counsel is maybe the only person who can look at it because you don't want their in-house counsel or their business people seeing those documents. Again, we go through this whole process of, is it relevant? Is it privileged? Who can see it? Boom. And then you produce it to the other side. And then that is what 
ultimately is used not primary, not only, but that is a, a main source of evidence that if a case goes all the way to trial, that would be a heavy, heavy source of that evidence that would be in trials. Over time, I've been in e-discovery for like 15 years, 12, 15 years. And when I first started, it was in the very early stages of e-discovery. Before it was just discovery. And then email came along and everyone was like, we got to put an E in front of this. So it's e-discovery now, folks. And when I was first doing it, we were looking at everything we were maybe even looking at using search terms. We were looking at even cached files on people's laptops, on their desktops. Over time, we've developed and started leveraging defensible processes using things like text-based analytics. So maybe identifying near duplicates or using what we call email threading. So if you ever sort your email, so conversations are all together, we would look at Maybe if there's five emails and there's one email at the top that has all of the underlying emails completely, we wouldn't look at all five of them. We would just look at the one that has all of them. So we would call that email threading, the most inclusive email. And that saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of money to do that. And then maybe about 10 years ago or more, we started using tech technology-assisted review. And that is leveraging originally an LSI-based algorithm, latent semantic index algorithm, which analyzes all of the documents and creates like a bag of words and develops a constellation of how the different documents are connected to each other by concept and not so much by literal exact word matches, which is what a keyword search does. So it's a more sophisticated workflow. Again, it, it's tying together concepts. So if I say Thanksgiving and you say Turkey Day, it knows that it's the same thing. And there is this whole iterative process where we would have subject matter experts look at a robust and rich sample set that's diverse in concepts and code them, review them and determine what's relevant and not relevant. And then the algorithm would take those coding decisions and apply it to the remainder of the review universe to determine a score of those documents, what is the likelihood it's relevant. So it would get a relevancy rank. And then there's this whole process we go through. It's a very iterative process where we go and look at the results, we validate it, we feed the results of validation to the algorithm and it updates the score because usually the first iteration is not correct. You have to keep working at it. And we do this thing called math where we track precision and we track recall to determine the validity and strength of of the results of that process until it's defensible. Because again, we're using machine learning in an adversarial way. And you really have to have your ducks in a row and be able to sometimes in a court hearing, there's case law about the use of TAR, uh, and be able to validate that you used it in a way that was thorough. You're not able to get to perfection when you're talking about millions of documents. You're not able to get absolute perfection, but it's defensible. It's defensible in 
again, the data re- richness, the, the data accuracy. Now, that was a very complex workflow. And over time, it's gotten a little bit more elegant. We moved to something called active learning, where you're leveraging a different type of algorithm called the SVM vector. It's a vector related. And pretty much, I can't remember what the initials stand for. SVM, pretty much what it's doing, it's not building out a constellation like LSI does. LSI is building a constellation, takes a lot of time to build a constellation, a galaxy of stars, right? What SVM does is it draws a line in the sand, a vector, and it says anything on this side of the line is likely to be relevant. Anything on that side of the line is likely to be not relevant. And again, it ranks it. And the higher the number, the more likely it is to be relevant. And what you do is you go through and you validate that. And sometimes you review all the documents anyway, but you're doing it in a priority order. So you're looking at the most relevant things first, which should sound a little bit like something you're all familiar with a social media feed. So anytime I use Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, any sort of feed like that where the algorithm is pushing content in your feed, I always think of it as an active learning project. There's an algorithm that is trained on my behavior and it's feeding me content that it thinks is most relevant to what I want to see. And so that's one reason why I really do engage in social media and play around with it. A lot of it for me is a kind of a professional exercise out of curiosities. What behaviors will be rewarded by the algorithm? It's kind of like what content are relevant to these RFPs. So that's kind of how I think about it. And here's the interesting thing. So we're talking about social media algorithms, fairly complex, sophisticated systems. And we use something very similar in a lot of ways. Interestingly enough, a lot of people in the legal profession don't really see e-discovery as that sophisticated of a practice. But I think it's a lack of understanding. And I think they're just equating box to email. And it's gotten so much more robust, so much more rich. We're getting Every day, it's like a different data source that we're having to wrangle with and doing a lot of problem solving. And we're living in a data economy now. So being able to understand how to analyze that data, closely get to it. I mean, nothing will get my adrenaline pumping like someone saying, I need to find this document. We're prepping someone for a deposition and they remember this email somewhere around this date where they kind of talked about this thing. So going to go find it in the documents that have been collected is what I always think of as hunting for buried treasure. It, it is like I my adrenaline starts pumping and I get really excited and I'm going to find that document first. So that's how I'm an adrenaline junkie. I don't jump off bridges. I look for documents and I love metadata. So we all have our own things we care about. So Again, why should you care about any of this? Just be mindful. Even text messages are more and more frequently being used in, in, in litigation. And we're seeing that sometimes those are the more interesting documents. People's guards are down. People don't quite realize their text messages, even from their personal accounts, if they're talking about something that is relevant 
to a business matter or a dispute, it can be discoverable. And if you delete the messages or you delete that content after there was some level of expectation of a dispute between the parties, then you're dealing with this fancy word called spoliation and it may not work well for you or your company. So it's just good to be aware of that. Now, let's look back. The past year to two years, we've seen some really big cases roll through the courts and get a lot of attention on TV where evidence like mobile phone evidence was very important. So Theranos, the the, the different lawsuits against the CEO and COO of Theranos, uh, Sunny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes, and them talking to each other, that was heavily leveraged in cases against both of them and covered in the media. The Johnny Depp and Amber Heard litigation, the, the defamation litigation, that was heavily turned on text messages and also turned on whether or not the, that information was all authentic because there is a process by which in court, if you use evidence, you do have to authenticate the evidence. And there are tools out there that will let you create fake text messages. So that's just like another interesting thing that's out there. It makes everything even more complicated. Now, something I am very passionate about. Everyone's talking about generative AI. Everyone's talking about AI. And yes, we all know AI has been around for a while. It's not new, but it is more pervasive. It is more available and people are getting giving it more attention than they've ever given it before. And I feel like those of us who've worked in e-discovery, we offer a unique set of skills, not to roll like Liam Neeson here, but we have a unique set of skills that I think are very valuable at this time. And we can come forth and really be leaders in some of these conversations. Because again, we've been using machine learning in an adversarial setting for 10 years. We've had to use it and we've had to validate our ability to use it. And that's not really the case of a lot of AI that's been in use in private commercial practice or other practices for a while. I think that's going to change. We're seeing that with the EU AI Act that will probably go live sometime in the next like six to 12 months. And we're already seeing the U.S. government saying, hey, we're going to we're going to roll out a bipartisan bill and try and pass it before we even have a federal data privacy law. We're focusing on AI now. Now, what that law may look like and what that may require, we don't quite know. It looks a lot like, from what we're seeing, some risk assessment depending on the use cases of the AI, and maybe it requires transparency, maybe it requires audits to to ensure that there's no bias through the use of those algorithmic tools. All of that, I think, is up for discussion, and where it lands, we don't know, but there are those of us in eDiscovery We understand the law. We understand the technology. We understand project management. We we know how to not only talk about technology, we know how to manage it. And we know how to manage it in a way where we're documenting our processes. We're tracking our results and validating it. We have SOPs. We do want 
a standard form of doing things. But of course, you always have to tweak it depending on the needs of a given case. We understand it's iterative. We understand that the first time you use an AI-based tool is probably not going to be what you want. We realize that you're going to put more time on the front end, but save time on the back end. So there are a lot of practical skills that we bring to the table that I think people, in my observation, talk about AI in a very cursory, shallow way, shallow in that it's really good or it's really bad. It can be really good, but sometimes it may not be ideal for all use cases. And sometimes it may be there's too much inherent bias. It could be because you don't have sufficiently rich data. It could be the data that model's not trained for maybe what exactly you want it to do and you don't have time to do it. Maybe sometimes you're just going to do it the old school way and you're going to do it yourself. I think all of those just very practical things that we understand are very valuable skills uh, when it comes to a broader discussion of AI, whether It's the use of AI, more traditional machine learning tools, or the use of generative AI tools. Again, not only in the legal profession, but as we talk to our clients, using Spotify to predict the next song you want to hear is much different risk assessment to should these certain demographics get a home loan or what sort of bail should be set for these people who've been accused of these crimes. And I just feel very passionate about the fact that we're a group of attorneys who have a very sophisticated understanding of technology and data. We understand how messy data is. People think that data is this like pristine, perfect jewel out there. It's data. It's amazing data. Data can be messy and it can be junky. And we all know garbage in, garbage out. Definitely agree with that. And sometimes the data input is prone for errors. You have to maybe sometimes look at the data and normalize it and clean it up to maximize the analysis that's that's being done. I think, again, it's a unique opportunity for many of us. I feel very passionate about it. I've said it a couple of times. I feel like I've been growing my tree, my e-discovery tree, building on my experience the past 10 years of using AI. And it's time for me to cut that tree down. I'm cutting that tree down. I'm making a chair out of it and I'm finding the table and I'm going to force myself to the table if I have to, because I think that it's a really great skill set that we have. And it's something that we shouldn't be afraid to say. I've talked a little bit about e-discovery. Hopefully you've not found it too, too boring. I find it like incredibly interesting and exciting. Obviously, I could talk about this all day. And then how we can leverage our skills in broader discussions of AI and technology. And it's not just AI. I'm very interested in other emerging technologies, digital twins. I'm very fascinated by the impact of the broader use of those. You were talking about digital systems that aren't static. So we're talking about evidence that is not static. It's continually dynamic, continually systems that are continually being updated by IoT data being fed into it. How how will that fit into the concepts and the rubrics of traditional e-discovery email type systems, 
blockchain technology, again, very fascinated by and interested what can cause the blockchain model to break, what are some interesting use cases for it. And then the broader web through three digital assets, all of that, uh, it just gets my brain churning with ideas. So a career that I never really asked for, knew about, ended up being a very interesting and exciting and validating career. So again, to kind of circle back, something I talked about earlier in the episode For anyone who's early in their career and you feel like you're hitting road stop after road stop, roadblock after roadblock, (laughs) have faith. Your feelings now are valid, but keep pressing forward and just always be interested in learning new things. That will always serve you well. Follow the technology. Never be content. There's always something else you can know to expand your knowledge. And who knows what the future may bring as far as where the next maybe untapped resources, as I see e-discovery professions are. And with that, I'll wind this episode down. I hope you've learned a thing or two about myself, about e-discovery, about the potential future of people who've worked in this world in e-discovery. And I hope you join us for the next episode of Cassie and...